So today we are moving on to our next attribute and we're looking at the eternity of God, that God is eternal. So, so far we've done that God exists, we've done that God is spirit, and then today we're doing that God is eternal or the eternity of God. So kind of like we started off last week, how would you define the word eternity? What does it mean for something to be eternal? What is eternity? Infinite? Well, so, yeah, so that's good. But what's interesting is God's infiniteness is a separate attribute of him. So eternity is infinite, but it would need to be more because God himself is infinite. Outside of time is kind of a negative. Outside of time? Yeah, that's a good one. Outside of time. Yep, that's good. No beginning, no end. Yep. So no beginning, no end is kind of... Outside of time, no beginning, no end is kind of the, the chief definitions. Eternity, like we're going to find, like we saw with spirit last week, it's one of those words where we, we, know, we use it often, and when we use it in conversation, we don't think twice about it, but when we really stop to try to define it, it's, it's a little bit beyond us. The same, same with the concept of time. Like, how would you define time? And what's interesting is um, there's, a, there's a quote from Augustine that's really funny where he's talking about time and eternity and Augustine's talking about how hard it is to define eternity and how it's even harder to define time. Like, what is time? And Augustine, I, can't, I, I don't have the quote memorized, I should have put it up, but he basically says, I know what the definition of time is until you ask me. Yeah. And his point is, like, we use it, you know, like, I don't have time for that, or what's the time today, or how much time will it take? We use the word time, so we know what it means, we use it so flippantly. It's like, I know what it means, but when you ask me to define the word time, I... I, I don't have a clue. I don't, it's like, so he was really funny. I know what it means until you ask me, then, then I don't. Eternity is kind of the same way, but it's a little bit easier. Uh, the, the first thing I want us to see before we get onto the definition, which we've already discussed, is that the, the, we, we can define eternity, but we really can't understand it. Uh, Stephen Charnock says this, how little do we know, how little can we, how little do we know, how little can we know of God's eternity? We cannot fully conceive it, much less express it. What is infinite and eternal cannot be comprehended by finite and temporary creatures. If it could, it would not be infinite and eternal. So here's, he's basically saying it's really impossible for you to know eternity because you're not eternal, so you can't get to the ends of it, right? He goes on, the notion of eternity is difficult, though we cannot comprehend eternity, yet we may comprehend that there is an eternity, as though we cannot comprehend the essence of God, what he is, yet we may comprehend that he is. We may understand the notion of his existence, though we can't understand the infiniteness of his nature. So basically what he's saying is eternity and God are interesting where we can know that they are, even though we can't quite know exactly fully what they are. So we know that there is eternity and we can define it, but we can't really truly comprehend it. So there's a difference between comprehension and apprehension. We can apprehend eternity, we can apprehend something being eternal, but we can't fully comprehend it, because by nature we're not eternal, so we can't get there. But both Charnock and other theologians like uh, John Gill, I have here, but basically everyone would essentially define eternity the same way. He says, eternity is a perpetual duration, which hath neither beginning nor end, time hath both. So the key here is neither beginning nor end, something that has no beginning or no end. Even more simply, that's how John Gill defines it. Eternity, properly so-called, is that which is without beginning, without end. But again, like we, you're going to see this so often, and Bill already said this, so much of how we understand these deep complexes through what Augustine called negative words and not positive words. 
Notice, how are we defining eternity? Without, without. So we're not even really giving you a positive definition. We're giving you a negative definition. I can't really tell you what it is, but I can tell you what it's not. It's not beginning and it's not end, right? It, take away beginning, take away end, and whatever you have left over is eternal, <laughs> right? So negative definitions or even outside of time. That's, that's more of a positive definition, but it's still kind of negative because it's still really saying whatever is not time is eternity, right? So we, again, we understand these things through negation more than positivity. So the key that we're going to look at is the, the first half of the class is this notion of without beginning and without time. But there's going to be another understanding of eternity that's going to be one of the most confusing things you've ever heard in your life. Like it's going to be really, really confusing. But let's just begin with some scriptural and logical proofs that God is without beginning and without end. In other words, he is eternal duration or perpetual duration as Charnock calls it. So we have positive, unlike last week, where we only had like one example from scripture of God being spirit, and then the rest was kind of deduction. This week, we have a lot of positive examples from scripture. We're not going to even come close to quoting all of them, um, but we have a lot of examples of scripture that, that explicitly call God eternal, and it does so in a couple ways. One is very explicitly, it just calls the being of God eternal. It calls him eternal. Here's one example, Psalm 90 verses 1 through 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is obviously all important. He is our dwelling place in every generation. This is talking about a kind of infiniteness, eternality. No matter what generation you live in, God is there and he's your dwelling place. He preceded creation. But this is the key, from everlasting to everlasting. What you'll find in Scripture is that Scripture, because it is, speaks to us, we've talked about this analogically, it speaks to us through analogies and anthropomorphisms, uh, Scripture is almost always going to define God's eternity with time-bound language. Because again, we can't comprehend eternity, so the only way God can appeal to our weaknesses is to use language that isn't entirely, isn't entirely accurate. So the only way for the scriptures to help us understand eternity is to describe it in time-bound language. But remember, time-bound language is always technically improper when talking about that which is outside of time. So this isn't a technical definition. It's just the only way God could possibly communicate this concept to us. So from everlasting to everlasting. So go back in time as far as possible. And again, that's time-bound language. It's inappropriate, but it's all we have. So you just, you go backwards into everlasting and God's there. And then you go forwards into everlasting. Go back and forward infinitely, forever, and God's always there. From everlasting to everlasting. Yes, yeah, same, same. It's that same kind of poetic concept. As far that way, as far that way, God is there. He is from everlasting to everlasting. This is the kind of language we get. And this is just one example, but you can find this phrase from everlasting to everlasting all throughout the Psalms, even a lot often in Proverbs. This is just one example. It's all over the Bible that God is from everlasting to everlasting, that he has no beginning and he has no end. We have probably the most important example, though. Of, I mean, we, like I said, the scriptures are just filled with positive examples he is from everlasting to everlasting. He has no beginning or no end. But potentially the most important thing we have is God's name. His name. He reveals himself to us 
in a way. And what you're going to find is this name is going to come up in a lot of God's attributes. You could almost think of this entire class as an exposition of what I am means. Basically, the entire class, not, and I don't mean today, I mean the entire series, is breaking down Exodus 3.14. You, could, you really could think of it that way because there's so much packed in these two little English words that, I mean, God didn't reveal them in English, but I mean, there's just so much to say about I am. We could talk for months. I'm literally, we could talk for months about it. Um, so this is going to come up a lot. But one of the most important things we see in I am is this notion of eternity. So God, what's God's name, right? This is what Moses wants to know when God sends Moses back to talk to Pharaoh. Because remember, the Egyptians have lots of gods. The Egyptians are not atheists. The Egyptians believe that God exists. And they take it a few steps further. They think lots of gods exist. So when Moses shows up to Pharaoh and says, Hey, God spoke to me and God told me, let my people go. What's Pharaoh's question going to be? Which one? There are lots of gods. Every nation has their own god. We have our own god and we have multiple gods. Pharaoh's thinking there's hundreds of gods. Which god sent you? Who sent you? Moses is telling, I need to know more about you before I go speaking on your behalf. And the Egyptians are going to ask questions and the Jews are going to ask questions. Which god are you? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, this is what you shall say to the sons of, the Israel, of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And this becomes, in the Old Testament, the highest name of God. And what we mean by that is it becomes the one most often used. And this becomes the only name of God never given to anything else. God has a lot of names in the Old Testament, but those names can be called to other people. So like God is called a wonderful counselor. But we have people that we call them counselors right? You might know a wonderful counselor. God is just like the great wonderful counselor. God is called Elohim in the Hebrew, but angels are called Elohim. Even kings are called Elohim. So God has a lot of names in Hebrew, but those names can be attributed to other things. I am is the only name that is never given to anything else but God. Nothing else is ever called I am except for God. So this, in English at least, this is God's highest name. What's God's name? I am. Isn't that a weird name, right? His name is an expression of his, his, his existence. And what's interesting about this is technically Moses existed when God said this, right? So why isn't Moses also I am? That's what we're going to look at. God is saying, even though lots of things exist, I am. I'm the existence. I'm the existence. But just before we explain it, I want to share a couple just fun facts about the I am. This is what we call the tetragrammaton. And uh, Yahweh, at least as we render the Hebrew I am into English, becomes Y-H-W-H, and we pronounce it Yahweh. This is what we call the tetragrammaton. The Hebrew language doesn't have vowels, and so a proper translation wouldn't have vowels, and so that's where we get here. And if you were to try to add vowels, that's why we pronounce it Yahweh. Now, it's, I, I don't know all the details of this, so I can't explain it to you today, but I know historically when they made the tetragrammaton, 
uh, they added wrong vowels, and so that's how, and it ended up becoming called Jehovah for a long time. So if you ever read an old hymn that talks about Jehovah, if you ever read an old theologian that names Jehovah, that's just because they lived before we realized that that's the wrong pronunciation of the Tetragrammaton. So Jehovah, it's not that big a deal. Like, if someone calls God Jehovah, it's not that big a deal. But really, it's, we've kind of learned that it was bad scholarship, so you really shouldn't call God Jehovah. You should call him Yahweh. But not that big a deal. And uh, the way you can identify Yahweh in your Old Testament is anytime the word Lord is all caps like this. The L will still be bigger. It'll be a bigger font, but all the letters will be capitalized. Uh, sometimes if, you, if you're reading in your Old Testament and you see the word Lord and the letters are not capitalized, then that means underneath that in Hebrew was not Yahweh. It was maybe Elohim or some other Hebrew word. But if it's all caps, then it's Yahweh. So, it's, you can, so that, that'll help you from now on when you read through the Old Testament just to see how often it's used and how importantly it's used. Um, if you're familiar with uh, John MacArthur, John MacArthur Seminary, they just produced a new Bible translation. And the main thing, you know, they made their own changes. They did a lot of different stuff that we probably wouldn't even notice. But the main thing they did that's got everyone so excited is they've removed the word Lord and they've actually put in the Tetragrammaton. So if you're reading through that Bible, it would actually say YHWH when you get there, which is kind of a cool thing. Um, but anyway, so yeah, that's, that's interesting to know because the, the Yahweh is very, very important. This is God's ultimate and primary name. And in English, it's best translated as I am. Charnock says about this, this description being in the present tense shows that his essence knows no past nor future. When one of the primary things God's name reveals about himself is he's always present. You can go a thousand years backward and God is, right? His name is not God was, implying he used to be. God's name is not I will be, implying he might be in one day. His name is always I am. So God sees himself as always present. There's no such thing as past or future with God. He's just present. He's just, he just is. And he always is. We once were, and then we will be. You are now, you once were, and you will be. So you have those three stages. You used to be someone, now you exist as someone, and you will be someone else. You can't say that about God. God didn't used to be like this, and now he's like this, but then in tomorrow he'll be like this. He just is. This is expressing a continual present state. God always exists. He always has his being in the present. He knows no past or no future. Not that he doesn't know it in his, head, in his mind, but he does not experience past or future. He is Yahweh. I am. Um, and like I said, we're going to come back to this a lot because it, it's, it's relevant to a lot of different attributes of God. But do you have any thoughts just on some of these first proof texts we've looked at so far? Everlasting, everlasting, or I am? So Any thoughts? Yes. Yep. And we'll break that down in just a minute. But when we get into there is when it's going to start to get really weird. But yes, God is outside of time. Yep. So we have some other, we have a, couple, a few other scriptural proofs. Again, these aren't the only ones. This is just a sample. But we can also see that God is eternal, not just when he himself is called eternal, but when his attributes are called eternal. Because remember, an attribute is a description of a thing. So if the thing doesn't exist, then the attribute can't exist, right? Like my, my thoughts can't be older than me. 
It's not like I am 30 years old, but my thoughts are 50 years old. Because what was producing my thoughts before I existed, right? My strength can't exist apart from me. If Colin disappears, then Colin's strength disappears. If Colin disappears, then his thoughts disappear. So if God's attributes are said to be eternal, then that means he himself is eternal. And so we have a lot of other scripture passages we could go to. Psalm 103, but the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. So if his loving kindness is eternal, then he is eternal, right? Romans 1, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. Again, God's power is eternal. God's power is outside of time and has no beginning or no end. So how could God's power have no beginning or no end if God had a beginning or an end, right? Couldn't happen. So by calling his power eternal, we're calling God eternal. In Ephesians, again, 3.11, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, God has been purposing something for all eternity. So how could he do that if he didn't exist for all eternity? So we have a lot of passages in Scripture that say God explicitly is from everlasting to everlasting. And then we have other passages that speak of his attributes as being eternal or his attributes as being from everlasting to everlasting. So we have a lot of scriptural affirmations that God is eternal. But we have even more than that because we have deductive arguments we can make from things we know about God. And so this is, again, like I said, every week we're going to have to talk a little bit about some of the other attributes. You can't completely separate them. Based on what we know about God, we can also deduce his eternality. We can, we can see that he is eternal through the other things that we know about him. For example, God is the creator. Once you affirm God is creator, you have to affirm he is eternal. He can't be the creator if he isn't eternal. And let me explain that. Uh, if, if he had a beginning, then what caused his beginning? Right, this goes back to when we did the proofs of God, the cosmological argument. Everything that begins to exist had a cause. So if God began to exist, things don't just create themselves. Things don't just begin to exist on themselves. Something has to cause something to exist. So if God began to exist, then something caused him to exist, right? And so then he wouldn't be God. Whatever caused him to be, that would be God. And so what would be the question? Well, what caused that to exist? And what you'll find is that you, you can't run that game forever. Like if someone were to say, well, I think God is created. Well, who created God? Uh, super God. Okay, well, is he eternal or is he created? No, I think he's created too. Okay, who created super God? Super, super God. Okay, who created him? Super, super, super God. And you just go on forever. You can't do that. So what logic demands is that something is eternal. The fact that we are here is proof that there is some eternal creator out there. You don't even need a Bible for that. There's just, there's no way. You could just keep like a kid asking the why question. How did I get here? Your parents made you. Well, how did they get here? And then you, eventually you're going to have to hit a wall where you have something that made everything else. So there, there just logically has to be some eternal creation out there. And by the way, uh, atheists even will recognize this. For the longest time, atheists said the universe itself was eternal. That matter was eternal. And now that we've disproven that scientifically, we know that the universe is not eternal. They've come up with a couple different theories. There's, we talked about the multiverse, but that only just kicks the can further down the road because whatever is creating all of these universes, where did that come from? So they're still going to have to eventually get back to some eternal universe creator. And that's why most atheists will just simply say, we don't know yet, but science will figure it out. We don't know where the universe came from, but science will figure it out, right? But most, very few atheists claim that 
nothing is eternal because they understand that you just can't, something has to be. There has to be an eternal something that created everything. And so if God is the one who created everything, then he's that eternal something. So if you affirm God is creator, you have to affirm he's eternal. And by the way, the Bible uses this logic, or not uses, but it tells us this explicitly. In John 1, 1 through 4, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him, not even one thing came into being. And this is the key that has come into being. So this is amazing specificity from John here. John is not saying that God created absolutely everything because then he would be saying God created himself. And that would be a logic. John is not saying God created absolutely everything. John is saying God created absolutely everything that came into being. Every, if, if, if it came into being, God put it there. God's the one who made it. If it didn't come into being, then God didn't create it. And what's the implication of this? There's only one thing that didn't come into being. God. The creator is the one eternal thing. God is the only thing you can look at and say he has never come into being. He, he always just is. He never came to be. He just is. And what does that sound like? I am, right? I'm, I'm just the one who's always been here. I'm the, I'm, I'm the eternal one. So if it came into being, then it needs a creator. If it didn't come into being, it's eternal and doesn't need a creator and God didn't come into being. And I don't have time to prove it to you because it's kind of complicated, but there's some really interesting understandings of how specifically in Hebrew, this was obviously Greek, but in the beginning is also how the Hebrew Bible starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is, most scholars, there's debate about this, but most scholars will tell you that this phrase is a phrase for that which has no beginning. Now, why they don't just translate that into English, I don't know. But basically everything I've read was this concept of in the beginning is the Hebrew is really difficult to translate. But what the Hebrew is trying to, trying to say is that if you go back before creation, God is there. And if you keep going backward, wherever you land, God's there. He's in that beginning. Whatever the beginning, wherever beginning you choose to land on, he's there. So this is basically, this is like a Hebrew phrase and a Greek phrase saying, go back as far as you can, which again, time-bound language, but it's all we have. Go back as far as you can and, and wherever you stop, God's there. And no matter where you stop, God's there. So in the beginning is really a, a subtle way of saying God has no beginning. Everything else has a beginning, and when it came into being, God was already there. I already am when you came, right? So this is also basically saying God has no beginning, and he did not come into being. So same logic here. He's the creator, which makes him the eternal one. Uh, John gives us more proof of this in John 5. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself also. Notice this is an interesting phrase, that they have life in themselves. What this is saying is that they do not receive life from something else. God is not hooked up to some generator pumping his life and energy into him. We all are, at least metaphorically speaking, right? Like you do not have life in yourself. Someone had to give you life. You are borrowing life from a lot of different places. Your parents, from your body, from God himself, from the energy that food gives you, from, you have so many things that are sustaining you 
that you could lose your life if those things quit. If your heart dies, so does your life. If your parents don't ever get married, you never come into being. Your life has been given to you and it's being sustained by other things other than yourself. So you don't have life in yourself. You are the recipient of life. But here, we are being told that God the Father, and then he communicates that to the Son. So the Trinity, each person of the Trinity has life in themselves, which means they are not receiving life from outside. God just is life, and everything else has to receive its life. So God never started life. Everything else's life has to start. They have to get the life and then their life starts. But God never gets his life, so it never starts. So again, he's the one who just always has life. He never got it. He never loses it. He just is life. And this is why Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is life. He doesn't receive it. He is it. Um, So again, God is not getting his life. And this is contrary to in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, When Paul is debating the Greek philosophers, Paul tells us about God. In him, we live and move and have our being, right? We receive everything from God. God receives nothing from outside himself. He just is life. He's just the I am. So we we see that because God is creator, he has to be eternal. We also know this, that God is immutable, which is where we're going to study next week in more depth. But very quickly, it means God doesn't change. God cannot change. Beginning to exist and ceasing to exist are changes, states of beings. Probably the greatest change any being can go through. (laughs) There's no greater change than coming into being or going out of being. Those are the two biggest changes a being can possibly go through. And so since God cannot change, he cannot begin to exist and he cannot cease to exist, which makes him eternal. No beginning, no end. He can't begin and he can't end because he's immutable. We also know this because God is perfect. This is kind of an interesting one. To be created or to not exist are imperfections. And we don't mean moral imperfections, but it just means you are not as glorious or as great of a being as you could be. If you are created, then you are in some way, shape, or form lesser than that which made you. No matter how smart our computers get, the human is always smarter than the computer that it created because the computer couldn't create itself or make the human to make it. If you're created, that's a kind of lesser status. And same with if you don't exist at all. If you don't exist at all, you're quite literally as worthless as you possibly can be. So to not exist or to be created lessens the glory of your being. You're not as amazing as you could be. And since God has no imperfections, this means he was not created, nor can he be created, nor can he cease to exist, which again means he's eternal. I want to show you, this might sound kind of harsh or kind of weird, but the scriptures all over the place assume this. The scriptures love to demean man, or maybe a better way of saying, the scriptures love to humble us. When we get prideful and arrogant, one of the scripture's favorite ways to humble us is to remind us that you are a created being. You're a creature. You're not eternal. You were made, and that's supposed to humble you. It's supposed to make you realize, I'm not that important. I'm a creature. Here's one example. Job 8, 9. For we are only of yesterday and know nothing because our days on earth are as a shadow. Notice what it's saying. You shouldn't think that highly of yourself. Why? Because you're only of yesterday. You, compared to the history of the entire universe, you've barely been in the picture at all. 
Like the universe has been here for thousands and thousands of years and you came into being like 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago. You're nothing. You're of yesterday. You're not eternal. And therefore, you know nothing. And not just because you're of yesterday, but because you are a shadow on earth. You're a vapor in the wind. You barely began to exist and you're not going to live that long. We're here and we're gone like that. And that's supposed to humble us. It's supposed to tell us, you see, we're not that great. So you see how Job is saying that coming into being and leaving being are kinds of imperfections, not moral imperfections. It's not like you've, you're sinning because you're a creature. Not moral, but your being is lesser because you're created. Job eleven seven. can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? The rhetorical question, God has no limits. We are limited. God has no limits. So this means that we are imperfect not morally, but just our being is imperfect. So if God is going to be a perfect being with no limitations, he has to be eternal. God is infinite. So this is another way we prove that God is eternal. If God is infinite, he must be outside of time. Time by definition is corporeal, it's carnal, it cannot be infinite. Physical things can't be infinite. Time includes the physical realm, so time cannot be infinite. So if God is infinite, he must be outside of time. And if he's outside of time, then he's outside of past, present, future. And if he's outside of those things, then he's outside of creation. So God is not in the past or present or future. He's outside of it. He's not created. He can't exit it, right? So if God is infinite, then he is by necessity eternal. He is outside of time. I want to stop there because this is where it's going to get weird. Uh, do you have any just thoughts or questions on any of the scripture or logical arguments that we've given so far? Just anything else you want to contribute? Doesn't have to. I know it's, for the most part, it's been kind of simple. I, I, I think you're tracking along. You know, I don't think you necessarily came in here like, I really need proof that God is eternal. I don't believe that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Well, we would say time has a beginning, but we would just say that there is something outside of time which has no beginning. But that's that's where this gets weird because, and this is what Augustine meant when he Augustine was saying time is harder to define even than than e eternal. Like, what is what is time? Most. As I was pondering it, I think most people would define time as something like the measurement of movement. As, as you measure things in process, the measurement of movement, the measurement of succession. Uh, but it's, it's very hard to define time. One of the things we do know is that in physics, time is almost treated, almost treated like a physical substance. And this is where Albert Einstein's theory comes into play. And part of that is because God designed the universe, the stars... Uh, the Bible tells us even that the stars are used to, to, to count the seasons. So the, the motion of the universe is how we count time. So to some degree, time is the motion of physical things. It's whenever you measure the motion of that which is created, that's sort of time. And that's why we say if something is outside of creation, it is by necessity outside of time because time is the measurement of, of creation moving, so to speak. But it, even that is probably kind of complicated. Like, how do you define time? It's hard to define. It's, it's kind of like, you know, when, when the first place planet came, you know, this kind of talking time. 
where they take off to go out into space, and, and that's where Einstein came in. If you could have a clock and you could start backing up away from it, and you could see the seconds tick off somewhere, yeah. you're going to see that clock stop. Yep. <laughs> and then when you come back, it's going to start speeding up, but you're going to still remain the same age, you know, as you're coming back, because, like you said, now you're measuring time, but you have stopped in time. Now when you come back to it, everything's speeding up, but theoretically, you haven't moved in time. You know, and that's kind of where it's amazing how many people want to say, I can't, you shouldn't be a Christian because of that hard to understand doctrine of the Trinity. And then they go on to believe things like that. And I'm not saying it's not true. I, I, I believe it. But it just goes to show that there are lots of things beyond our comprehension. Like, I don't even know what half that means. <laughs> we are trained to think linear terms with time. Yeah, time is by definition linear. In history of books, and I don't know how many, we had lots of teachings on the timelines of the Old Testament. Yeah. A lot of Bibles even have them kind of, well, not Bibles, but, but you know, we're just used to seeing that in these these timelines. I mean, that, that there's a beginning and an end, and then you think everlasting somehow wraps around in the middle. But, uh, that is a way to look at time that we've made up. It's, it's, God is above that. He's beyond that. Yeah, that's right. And we, I don't know if we've already established, but obviously he, he can see all of time at the same time. Yes. Yep. So he can see the beginning and the end. So it's not linear to him. Right. It's, it's, I keep thinking of like my grandkids just being all involved in playing a game and it's just all right there and they think the world is, I mean, their whole world is right there. And you say, you know, what about ice cream cone? Well, that's totally out of this world they're submerged in. Yep. And even us right now, we're submerged in our local here. But that's, <clears throat> that's one thing is we see the progression of our knowledge and imagination. Like uh, living in Roswell since 1960s, the UFO event was never mentioned anywhere until 1997, which was the 50th anniversary of the UFO event. And you can tell me I'm wrong. No, but no, the book came out. But that was after we had watched Star Trek for 20 years. <laughs> yeah. And we had been conditioned to extraterrestrial things. And yeah. so now it was something plausible. And, and now on some of those things, you know, they, they have beings that are outside of time that come in and harass them or play with them. But <clears throat> they're. Yeah, we don't have our arm. We, we will never get our arms ripped out. But we, <clears throat> I think, I'm, I'm, sometimes I just can just say, okay, that's a boy that don't understand. You know, yeah. Eternity is, it is just beyond, he made, he made me to exist here and go up and down, left and right, and I'm going from beginning to my end. But there's a whole lot beyond that. Not yeah. just on the timeline. 
No, it's no. That that that's actually a great segue into one thing that is. This is just way beyond us, but it's part of understanding. So I'm going to teach it. But I, I'm I'm going to teach you. Yeah, that's right. That's right. No, please, no. Yeah. I think us contemplating this stuff and realizing it's actually beyond our comp- what we can comprehend. But it's good to think about it because we are thinking about God. Yeah. Yes. He does. Yep. Because we're saying, whoa. You think, you think uh, when we get to heaven, God's got a big sin next theater and he says, okay, here we go. We're going to go back here and this is when it starts. And watch the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you mind blown. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. Nah. Yes. Everything we believe depends on that. I mean, it's not one facet. Yeah. Well, I, I'm not saying this to spoil it. Like, sometimes when I say what I'm about to say, people apologize and you shouldn't because I love it. It makes me happy. But I'm going to try to prove that you are a deep thinker. At the end of the class, I have four, even though there's, I could have come up with lots more. The books I was reading had, had a lot of them, but I come up with four like applications, like so what's, like what should this do? And one of them is exactly what Bill said and what Drew was saying, that this should just, and I've got a cool quote from Charnock we'll read to the very end, should just make us worship God and just, just be amazed at how you know, he's so much better than anything else. And then one of the other applications was how fundamental his eternality is to all of his promises, to everything we know about him. Uh, his eternality is the key to our hope and our happiness, is how Charnock puts it. So that those, both of those applications that you came up with on your own were already applications we're going to get to. So, yes, I 100% agree. But before we get to those cool applications, we do have to cover something. You can almost think of it like this. To think of God being eternal, you can almost think of two parts to that. Part number one, he has no beginning and he has no end, and we've already covered that. This is part number two, and this is where it gets really weird. God is without succession. He's without succession. What we mean by that is um, we're talking about time being linear. For us, time, everything is linear as we experience it. And so you, everything you do, you move from one to another. As you speak... You speak one word and then another. So you, there, you, all of your existence is bound up in succession. But that is time. Time is succession. It's the measurement of movement. So if God is outside of time, he doesn't do one thing and then do another. Because now he's just gotten older. And now he's changed. And now he's time bound. So God does, has no succession. He doesn't think one thought and then think another. He doesn't do one thing and then do another. He does all his works simultaneously. He thinks all his thoughts simultaneously. There's no chronological order with God. There's no succession. There's no first I did this and then I did this. Everything he does is simultaneous now. Every thought, every action is now. How that relates, how he relates to us in time, I don't know. (laughs) We don't know. We know he can relate in time, but his actions are always present He doesn't do one thing and then do another. He does all things at all times at the same time. 
because he cannot have succession. Charnock says this, those things we say are in time that have beginning grow up by degrees. They have succession of parts. Eternity is contrary to time and is therefore a permanent and immutable state. So God doesn't have succession. He's just in a state of being. A perfect possession of life without any variation. So if God does one thing and then he does another, that's aged. That's variation. He can't have that. It comprehends in itself all years, all ages, all periods of ages. It never begins. It endures after every duration of time and never ceases. It doth as much outrun time as it went before the beginning of time. Time supposes something before it, but there can be nothing before eternity. The former passes away and another succeeds. We must conceive of eternity contrary to the notion of time. So he's trying to say time and eternity are basically opposites. They're foes. And so if God is in eternity, he's outside of time, which means he does not have succession or parts. He cannot move from one thing to the next. He cannot think one thought and then think another. He does all things, thinks all things simultaneously now. He, he doesn't do things later. There's, that just doesn't exist for him. I think this is what the, the deep truth Peter was trying to tell us in 2 Peter 3, when he says, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day, right? This is, obviously this is, this is metaphor, it's an expression. He's not saying like literally one day, a thousand years and two seconds. No, 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 just a thousand years, right? It's just an expression for, for God. There's no such thing as a thousand years versus a day. It's, it's just now. I am. That's all it is for God is now. So, and, and the, remember, what's funny about the context of this is what Peter is doing is you can tell a lot of the people he was writing to thought Jesus was going to come already. And they're upset, like, what the heck? Where's Jesus? Like, we were expecting this coming. Why is God being so slow? And so Peter goes on to say, I think it's right after this, or maybe it's right before this, but part of the context is he's saying, you can't call God slow. Because slowness is a measurement of time. God is not, there's no such thing as God moving slowly because he doesn't move. He's, he just is. And, so, and that's when Peter goes to say, like, guys, you can't, you can't think God is like, waiting or, or go moving slowly because he doesn't, he doesn't move. He's outside of time, right? So like it feels slow to you because you're in time and you're experiencing that, but it's, for God, there's no, there's no difference between a thousand years and a day. It's just, right? This is the closest we can get to this idea of there's no succession with God. There's no, I'm going to, I'll do this then. I'm going to, I'm going to do this now and then I'll wait and do this then. That, that's like saying, I'll do this on day one and then I'll do this on day a thousand. No, because for God, one day and a thousand years are all the same thing. It's, it's just one. So again, God has no succession. He has no chronological order. He doesn't do one thing and then do the next. All his acts, all his works, all his thoughts are ever before him, all happening at the same time, which is not even really the right way to say it. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> that works. Yeah. Well, that's that's why Christ could die for our sins. 
And that, well, that's why we can say Christ is dying. I, I think we can say, well, I mean, I'm sorry. You know, it's not that Christ is still on the cross, but yet, I mean, well, it, yeah, no, let me, let me, let me interrupt you with the Bible verse. What I think this helps connecting is the book, I think it's Revelation, but I can't remember, but one of the New Testament books describes Jesus as the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. How is Jesus crucified before the foundation of the world when his crucifixion did not happen before the foundation, it happened in time? We don't know for sure, that's kind of a complex thought, but I think it's somehow related to this idea that God's ways are eternal and ever-present so that he is always the crucified one. He was the crucified one before his crucifixion from God's vantage point, right? If you can step away from the linear view of time, I don't know where you step. <laughs> yeah. If you can step away from it, then you can throw all that, I can, yeah. and just say, that's a boy, I'm going to believe. I'm, I'm just going to believe God. Yeah. This, this is something I'll admit, I just, I believe by faith. Yes. Now, now, there is a logic to it. It's not just a total blind leap. Like, I mean, I've been trying to explain the logic. If, if, you, if you deny it, I can show you why that's a problem. So there is evidence to it. There's logical evidence to it. But in terms of understanding it and grasping it, I just believe this by faith. I believe it because I have to, to some degree. And I, it, I, also, I also delight to believe it. it. It makes God just so much more magnificent to me. But it's not... And I know I've said this a million times, but I want to say it again. This is, this is a question, does God experience succession? Does God experience movement? This is a question that any theist has to be prepared to give an answer for. Whether you're a Muslim or a Jew or a Mormon. And here's why that's important. Because again, the, one of, I know I've, I'm really beating this dead horse, but it's really important to me because I've seen it so much in my entire life. I've seen Christians get mad at the Trinity because it's so hard to understand. And people think that like God is really hard to understand when you're not, a, or God is easy to understand when you're not a Trinitarian. So just don't be a Trinitarian. They don't have all that hard to understand stuff. Like, what on earth do you mean that God is one being who exists in three persons and all three persons are the exact same and they're coexistent and co-eternal and they share the same identity, but they're different and they can interact and one can come to... What on earth does that mean? I grant, that's difficult. What on earth does this mean? And you can't get away from this by denying the Trinity. You can deny the Trinity all you want. I'm still going to ask you, is your God eternal? If he's not eternal, I've got big problems and I'll tell him. If he is eternal, you tell me, is he without succession? If you say yes, you've got some big problems, I'll tell you. If you say no, then I'll just say, okay, then explain to me what that means. And they won't be able to. Because no one can. Yet, they're going to tell you, don't, don't believe in the Trinity because you can't explain it. No, it's not the Trinity that's too hard to explain. God is too hard to explain. God is too hard to explain. And so what it actually does, ironically, is it makes the Trinity make more sense. Because what happens is everything we, we believe about God has levels to it. There's a level you can somewhat get, and then there's a level to it you can't get. And the Trinity, rather than being this one part of God that's hard to understand, actually falls in line with all the other things about God, which is you can kind of get it, but you can't fully get it. So you see how consistent we are now. I'm saying everything about God is something you can kind of get, but not fully get. Not just the Trinity. Eternality. We can kind of get this. This isn't totally, be honest, no beginning, no end. There you go. You kind of get it. But God has no succession. Now there's a depth to it we don't get. Last week, spirit, right? You, okay, God doesn't have a material being. I kind of get that. 
But flesh that out, explain that to me. Okay, it's hard, it's kind of beyond me. So every part of God has something we can grasp, something we can't. So, you know, so again, just don't be afraid of the Trinity. Uh, you know, there's so much about God beyond the Trinity that is, is hard to understand. So this is something, I think the logic, I think logic and reason and even scripture demands we believe this, but I just, I don't pretend like I comprehend it. I don't, I don't get it, I don't know. Obviously, there's great mystery behind this question that will never be uh, understood. But so, then could you say that um, God, uh, that the whole of history is simultaneous um, from everlasting to everlasting for God? For God, yes. Yeah. Char Stephen Charnock uses this beautiful metaphor, and obviously, or I mean analogy, and, and keep in mind, all analogies fall apart, especially when we're talking about God. But he talks about how God changes in our relation to him, but his being does not change. And he uses this analogy where he says, imagine a big, thick tree that's planted, and there's a, there's a river that runs through it and around it. It's like there's a tree planted in a river. So this river is in motion, but the tree is, is not moving. The river is running through the tree and around the tree, but the tree is not moving. So if you were, if you were the river, your relation, your, under, your relation to the tree would be changing, right? As you get closer to it and then you touch it and then you're away from it. So this immovable thing you're running through it and you're having different relations to it, but it itself is not moving with the, the water. And he says that's kind of like the best we can understand of God and time. Time is running through God and running around God, and we, in time, are, our, under, our relationship is, is changing and evolving as we run closer and through Him and to Him, but He's never changing. So yeah, from the river's perspective, time, certainly history is not at all ever before us. It's very linear and long, and, but yeah, from the tree's perspective, it's just it's just a river in front of you, right? To, to actually look at this, yeah, you know, how you get these books and pictures and all that from a baby to an adult. It's like God taking your whole life, putting it all in photos. That's what he sees. Right. The day you were born to the day you die. That's what he probably Exactly. And, and he, you know, that's how you say it. He doesn't know that this is the beginning or this is the end. He just sees the whole picture or the whole album right. all at one time. And even that, just to show how, it, I agree with you, so I'm not refuting you, but just to show how imperfect analogies are, even that wouldn't work because, like, even in that analogy, I, I still have to move from one photo to the next. God doesn't do, like, the, the photos would have to be stacked. Yeah. And... Even then, you couldn't because you'd have a top and bottom, and got it. Like they'd have to all be blended into one photo somehow. And God sees it all, right? Like, but I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. All spread out, yeah. Like you said, yeah, you'd have to look at them differently, but He sees all that one time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. You know, and it's the same way with the world. You know, from Adam till present day and beyond. Yep. He looks at that whole thing, and that's the way that you know. Like you said, he's outside of time, so, you know, it's irrelevant to us to think, how can you see all that? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, that kind of relates to sovereignty, because if he decreed everything, mm -hmm. then he knows what he decreed. Exactly. 
That, that was Ephesians 3. He has an eternal purpose. Yep, he has an eternal purpose. Yeah, that's right. So here's what's cool about this. God is without beginning or end. God has no succession. He, he's outside of time. So here's the consequence of this. We tend to think of eternity as everlasting time. Right? You, when we think of eternity, we think of start at one and just never stop counting. But that's not eternity, because right? Because time, that's time. That's progression. So here's what's so amazing. If that which is eternal is not just you and me, it's, it's not creatures, it's not even time itself. That which is eternal has to be outside of time. What other than God is outside of time? Nothing. So that means eternity is not outside of time. Because God is the only thing outside of time. So in other words, eternity is not like this thing that God has. Everlasting life is like that for us. Everlasting life is its own thing that we don't have that God will give to us. So for, from our perspective, we have to separate eternal life from me and then God can give me eternal life. But that's not how it works for God. It's not like before creation, there was eternal life and there was God and then God got eternal life. So the eternity is not outside of time. God is outside of time. So that means God is eternity itself. Like eternal is really not a way to describe God. God is a way to describe eternal. God is eternity because he is the only thing that is outside of time. Eternity is not a thing outside of time. That's just how we describe God's duration. God is eternity. When we get eternal life, we are participating in God because he is eternity and nothing else is eternal. Nothing else is eternity. John Gill says this, the eternity of God or his being from everlasting to everlasting is without succession or any distinctions of time succeeding one another. That's what we just said. As moment, minutes, hours, days, months, and years. The reason are because he, the reasons are he, because he existed before such were in being. God existed before moments, right? So God doesn't have, God's existence is not a moment to moment existence. He existed before moments. He created moments. <laughs> That's what God created. That's amazing. He existed before moments, minutes, days, hours. Before the day was, I am. Uh, or forgive me, before the day was, I am he. That's from scripture. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. These are all at once and together with him. He is that which is and was and is to come. And in his nature, he coexists with all the points of time in time, but is unmoved and unaffected with any. In short, God is eternity itself and inhabits eternity. So he did before time and without succession. So he does throughout time. And so he will to all eternity. That's a really deep quote, but I just wanted us to see that eternity is God. God is eternity. He doesn't possess it. He is it. And so let me give us some of our closing applications since we're running out of time that I kind of already alluded to. Some of the, like I said, we could, I could probably, we, if, we, if we really wanted to, I've got books, we could sit in a circle, we could probably come up with 50 to 100 of these. But let me just give you the four that first came to my mind. Some of the cool applications of the eternality of God. Number one is this is one of the strongest evidences we have to prove the deity of Christ. If God is eternal, then we have a very, very easy way to prove that Jesus is God. All we would need to do is prove that Jesus is what? Eternal. Logically, it looks like this. God alone is eternal. 
Jesus is eternal, so what does that make Jesus? Therefore, Jesus is God. This is one of the strongest ways we have to prove the deity of Christ. And the scriptures use this over and over again. The famous Christmas passage describes Jesus as the eternal Father. Now, this is hard to explain. Hebrew scholars debate over this. What some people say is you shouldn't think of this as him being a father eternally, but rather he is the father of eternity. And some, of, some English translations will actually say the father of eternity. Very few, but some will. He, he, he is the father. He is eternally he, he is the father of that which is eternal. Like eternity exists in him. But either way, no matter how you parse out those academic details, Jesus, whoever this Messiah that's supposed to be born to the virgin, is an eternal person. And we've already saw John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we, we have a proof right there. That this, is, this means eternal, and the Word was there, so the Word's eternal. And the Word is called God here, so the Word is God. He was in the beginning with God. Again, he's eternal. All things came into being through him and apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. So let me ask you this question. If the word, which we know is Jesus, right? Because John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If the word, if, if this is true, that not even one thing came into being that has come into being apart from him, then can Jesus come into being? No, because what would that mean? If Jesus is the creator of everything that came into being, and if Jesus himself came into being, what does that mean? He created himself. He's the creator of all things that began to exist. He began to exist. Jesus created himself. And that's an obvious absurdity. There's no such thing as creating yourself. You can't self-create so Jesus, in order for Jesus to be the one who created everything that came into being, he by necessity did not come into being. This is why the Jehovah's Witnesses had to go into the Bible and destroy this passage. Because they are desperate to make Jesus a created being. But this is very clear. He is an uncreated being, which makes him eternal, which makes him God. One of the best ones, this is a, technically a psalm, but it's quoted in Hebrews 1, and it's important because Hebrews 1 tells us it's about Jesus. But regarding the Son, he says, your throne, God, is forever and ever. So he calls him God, but skip to this part. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. Remember, this is of the Son. He says regarding the Son, and then there's an and. So he says this about the Son, and he also says this about the Son, right? So this is all about the Son. You, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, and like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Again, this psalm is about Christ clearly saying he's the creator of all things and he is the one, the eternal one, who has no end and no beginning. He's the creator of all things. Jesus is God. And lastly, Revelation twenty-two thirteen, Jesus says this about himself. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. All three of these things are metaphors to communicate the same thing. I am A to Z, the beginning of the alphabet, the end of the alphabet, the first, the last, beginning and end. This is just human language of saying I have no beginning I have no end, right? Jesus calls himself eternal, and only God is eternal. The second co consequence we have, so number one, the deity of Christ is proved by this. Number two, this is what Becky was talking about. This is the foundation for all our hope. This is the foundation for all our hope. God's eternity is the foundation for all of our happiness and comfort, because God is all of our happiness and comfort, right? 
He is the one who saves us, who sustains us, who made promises to us. So if God could cease to exist, then all of our joy, happiness, and comfort would terminate when he does. But knowing that God can't not exist means that his faithfulness is forever, his love is forever, his promises are forever, right? Everything that we hold to is meaningless if it's gone one, here one day and gone the next. But it's not because God is eternal. So his eternality is, is foundational to all of our hope and happiness. Number three, I, I alluded to this, um, salvation union with Christ. The Bible talks about you and me having eternal life, but how is that possible because you're not eternal? How is, how, you have a beginning, so how can you have eternal life? And that's because salvation is union with Christ. We come into Christ, and then Christ shares with us all that is his. He gives us his righteousness. He gives us eternal life. So the reason we can be said properly to have eternal life is because we are, we are stepping into Jesus' life. His life is eternal, and he's letting us participate in that. So that's why even though you are not eternal, you are going to experience eternal life in Christ because you are participating in his eternality, right? So we need to see salvation as, as, as union with Christ. Christ is giving us his life, which <laughs> I have to say this, and I'm sorry, I know we're running late, and I'm trying to be quick here, but this is so funny. There's this expression that evangelicals used to use all the time, uh, invite Christ into your life. That's, that's how we, you know, we ask people, please, you need, to, you need to invite Jesus into your life. You need to ask Jesus into your life. And I heard one pastor say, uh, the Bible says that before Christ, you're dead. You're spiritually, you're dead. You don't have life to invite him into. You're a graveyard. So, salvation is not us asking Jesus into our life. Salvation is we are asked into his. You are saved not when Jesus comes into your life. You're saved when you go into his He's inviting you into his life, right? We're not, he's not coming into ours. We're going into his. We want eternal life. You don't want your life. You want his life. And then lastly, this should just make us filled with love for God. And I, I read this quote from Charnock, and I wanted to end here. I, I couldn't say it better than this. Let the consideration of God's eternity take off our love and confidence from the world and the things thereof. The eternity of God reproaches a pursuit of the world as preferring a momentary pleasure before an everlasting God, as though a temporal world could possibly be a better supply than a God whose years never fail. Alas, what is this earth that men are so greedy of and will get though by blood and sweat? What is this whole earth if we had an entire possession of it if compared with the vast heavens, the seed of angels, and the blessed spirits, it is but an atom to the greatest mountain, or as a drop of dew to the immense ocean. How foolish is it to prefer a drop before a sea, or an atom before the world? The earth is but a point to the sun, the sun with its whole orb, but a little part of the heavens if compared with the whole fabric. If a man had possession of all of those things, there could still be no comparison between those that have a beginning, the, between those that have had a beginning and shall have an end, and God who is without either of them. Yet how many are there that make nothing of the divine eternity and imagine an eternity of nothing? It is such an amazing quote. He's saying you could have the whole created order. God could give you everything. You own the sun, you own the moon, you own the galaxies, you own, you own the whole earth. And you would still, compare to an eternal God, have nothing. And so what should this do? What should God's eternal... It should take our eyes off of created things. 
We should not be in, pers- in so much greed and lust and pursuit of things that are here today and gone tomorrow. Instead, we should be in pursuit of the only thing that is eternal. So he says, when you believe God is eternal, it will help you to stop loving the world so much. Because you realize it, it, this cannot satisfy you. It's a fetal. And I love how he says, not only is compared to God is the world worthless, but you have to work for it. It's really hard to own it. Like, you, you, you want to be rich and famous? If that was easy, we'd all be it. You got to work really, really hard to become rich and famous, and then even then you still die and it's all gone. Contrary to God, and you're still not happy. Contrary to God, who not only is eternal, but you don't have to work hard for him. You don't. It's easy to have everything. It's really hard to have nothing. And yet, how many people still work really hard to have nothing? How many people would, uh, would prefer an eternity of nothing than to contemplate divine eternity? And we know why. It's because of love for the sin. But, but I just love the way he, he, I love the way he put it here. If, 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 why does God's eternality matter? Yes, it gives us hope. And yes, it proves the divinity of Christ. But I mean, it, it just causes us to realize how much greater he is than anything that's created. If it's created, it's not worth much. Which again, back to Jehovah's Witnesses, that's why their theology is so blasphemous. If Jesus is created, I don't care how powerful he is, he isn't worth much. That's just how big the divide is between creator and creature. If Jesus is created, he's really not worth that much. Anything created isn't worth that much. Except for God, so it should make you fall in love with God. If you need to go, please go, but I, I still, I, I'm okay if you want. Any thoughts or questions? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. That's right. Yep. Exactly. I love one of the hymns we sing. Um, when I, or no, not, yeah, when I survey the wondrous cross, the last line is, "If the whole world, if the whole realm of nature mine, that would still be a present far too small." Love so amazing, love so divine, deserve, demands my life, something my all. It's that, it's that same notion. Like, you could literally give me everything. Give me all created things, and compared to God, that's a worthless present. It's a, it's, that, that present is too small compared to what the eternal God offers me, right? That's what God's eternity does. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right, yeah. Yep. I think the first Matrix movie was so, it just opened my eyes to, to being able to think irrationally. <laughs> mm. that, I mean, to be able just to say there's a whole world there, but you know, God is just it's uh, I'm sorry, it's irrational. Yeah. In fact I was gonna ask you what about the arguments for logic? You know, we're using the rules of logic, but yet anyway, you mentioned that too. Yeah. I would say that the, 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 the laws of logic I would say are eternal, but only because God is logical. Logic is eternal because it's a reflection of God's character in, in nature. Which is, but, if, but if you're an atheist, then logic is created. And that's a problem. That's a really big problem. Well, if you're an atheist, there's 
Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All of them have problems. Yeah. They just don't want to see them. No, that's right. That's that's what we were just talking about in the last. Who, well, you know, who doesn't want all those things? I mean, one moment I want a new car because my neighbor got one. You know, and the next moment I think, no, I don't. I mean, I mean, you know, that's got no eternal value. But yeah. You know, I turn around three times and yeah, I don't need a truck. Yeah, that's right. It's back and forth because I've got the whole nature in me. I can't, I can't shift permanently. Yeah. Yep. To to that eternal view of it. That's right. I think it was Spurgeon who has that famous quote. Maybe it wasn't Spurgeon. It was one of the one of the old Puritans who was a famous quote where he said, "Lord, stamp eternity on my eye on the inside of my eyelids, or stamp eternity in my eyeballs, something like that." And 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 the, the imagery is how different would my life be if I was consciously always consumed and thinking about that which is eternal, the eternal God and the things that we do that have eternal consequences. If those were always on my mind, how differently would I live my life? Like, give me a constant vision of eternal of the eternal. Right. That's the thing is we can't picture it. Right. I can picture climbing a mountain. I can picture the bottom of the ocean. I can picture flying into space. But there's nowhere to start. Yeah. Yep. Because you just, I can't. I can't imagine without time. I can't imagine without atoms. Without molecules. I can't. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Making me think more about heaven and opening my understanding to what some of the possibilities are. Which, before I started that book, I was pretty vague about what heaven would be like. Sure. Mm -hmm. I'm still pretty vague about it. But it's, oh, yeah. yeah. The Bible doesn't give us very much about it, but. Yeah, yep. Yeah, you talk about atheists and stuff like that. The guy told me one time, I can't remember who it was, but he told me, he said, you want to ruin an atheist thinking about there's no God? Tell him to reach in his billfold and pull out a dollar bill and read on it. Or it says, in God we trust. <laughs> yep. What does that piece of paper actually mean? Is it, does it have any value? No. It's just a piece of paper with some writing on it. So how do you know that that piece of paper can buy you anything? It can't because you have to put your trust in something. Yeah, yeah, that's but right. If you do, if if this is a piece of paper, then take all the money in your billfold, throw it on the ground, and walk away from it because you don't believe that's worth anything. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's the same thing about their spiritual needs. If you don't think that you have any faith or any belief in God. Yeah, yep. Yeah, and that, that, that's exactly the point that Romans 1 is getting at when it talks about how people suppress the truth and exchange it for a lie. But R Romans 1 is very clear. There's no such thing as a non-worshipper. Like, everyone is a faith-driven, worshiping, religious person. It just, the objects of our worship change. And atheists, over the last how many years, the secular world has done a good job at convincing people that they are religionless. 
that they are without religion. But it doesn't take that hard to examine just the structure of their claims and see, wow, this sounds an awful lot like religion. This sounds an awful lot like a faith-based institution and you have, you have an ethic, you have a metaphysic, just you have a telos and all the religions, they have ethics and metaphysics and telos. Like it's, you, you get real deep in, but that's more of a practical example of how, how yeah, we're, 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 all, we're all worshiping creatures. Yep. Everyone is a religious person dr- driven by faith. Yeah. Right? Because you said God in the statement, you should say, No, I don't believe in words. Yeah. You know, how, how do you not believe in something and then you yeah. say, say it? C.S. C- C- Lewis, Lewis had a funny thing where he said, uh, Atheists live by two fundamental principles. This, these, are, these are the two core foundations of atheism. If you want to be an atheist, you've got to get these two things right. Very important. Number one, there is no God. Number two, I hate him. Yeah. 